Wilkinson World Wild Podcast, sponsored by Forager Limited and The Wild Box. I'm your host, Miles Irving, and I'm going to say a little bit about that Wild Box, by which the podcast is sponsored. Um, the Wild Box is a, is a way in to your local surroundings. If you're someone that's not already familiar with wild plants, or you'd like to become more familiar, what we do is we send out seven ingredients every week, and then some detailed information about each one of them, and then some recipes that enable you to use everything that's in your box. And in the first 30 weeks, we counted up how many species we'd sent out, and it was 75 different species. I mean, even I was surprised. And with the different ways of using the, the species, like, for example, using a stem and a flower, that added up to 95 different ingredients when you added the, the, the ones where we doubled up. And alongside that, I always have some notes there, I think we, we, we call the word from the wild, where I explain some thoughts. At the moment, I'm looking at sort of signs and signals in the hedgerows, how plants are kind of communicating to us the availability of food, but also how in traditional cultures, those signs and signals in the hedgerows have become cultural signs and symbols, which speak to the significance of the plants in, in kind of mythology and stories and things like that and how being able to read these signs and symbols is really, it's like learning another language. It's becoming a sort of, a new kind of literacy and I've sort of, in, in playing, with, playing around with words as I like to do, I've coined the word that we are learning a new language instead of the, uh, the, the sort of written culture that we tend to refer to as, as literacy in our culture, that this is a different kind of literacy. Anyway, that's just an example of some of the thoughts we touch on. But suffice it to say, if you fancy signing up to the Wild Box, you can do that and it will kind of uh, give you a real tool to connect you with your surroundings. So without further ado, I'm going to move on to this week's guest, who is an old friend of mine that I've shared um, a journey of discovery of plants. Um, Alex Laird is a medical herbalist. I'll probably say that again in a minute when I introduce her properly. Um, but the point is, she's, she's helped me on the journey learning more about the medicinal side of plants, whilst I've um, introduced her to a few wild food plants. And just, just it's wonderful to use this podcast as a way to kind of broadcast um, conversations that are ongoing with people who are also trying to sort of weave these connections between people and land. And... Um, you know, it's that weaving of conversations also that that um, that will restore the um, the kind of bondedness that we used to have as 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 a culture with each other and with the land. It's all it's all one really. It's all about the the, the weaving of, of connections. And um, I think, uh, especially as, as you know, I'm looking out the window now, and there's a little bit of spring happening. There's a few blossoms out and that. And we realise that uh, although there's there's a lot of doom and gloom, and we touch on a bit of that in this podcast, but there's 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 still that joy, you know, for for lives to touch other lives, as we do when we gather plants and when we have conversations. There's there's uh, there's there's joy to be had in the connection, and um, life is stronger than all the uh, all the kind of gloomy stuff. So anyway, I'll get on with it now and. Um, Get on to introducing this week's guest. So I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest, which is Alex Laird. Now, Alex is a medical herbalist. She's the founder of the charity Living Medicine, which I will let, let her tell you more about. And she's also author of the book Root to Stem, um, which is a seasonal guide 
to natural recipes and remedies for everyday life. But more importantly, Alex is a is a good old friend of mine from um, many years back. We've shared a lot of uh, exploratory walks, foraging, and um, gathering with other people and, and cooking what we find and just exchanging knowledge, really. Probably me, more knowledge about food, and Alex, more knowledge about medicine. But um, she's... Uh, someone I've known for a long while within this context. So it's, 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 uh, it's great to do a podcast and just have a conversation with an old friend. Hi, h- hello, Alex. <laughs> hello, Miles. Great fun to do that. Yeah. And inspiring to talk to you too. Shall we, um, first of all, look at just going a bit deeper into telling people who you are and would you just say a bit about the work that you do and, and about living medicine and about the book and, and yes, yes. So um, back in, uh, gosh, 1995, I retrained after having been in television and and being an aromatherapist, in fact, which was my introduction. I retrained as a medical herbalist um, because I was really foremost interested in people, I think, rather than making television programs about them. And I was just beginning to be fascinated about what makes us live well, what what allows us to live well and manage difficulty and it seemed to me that nature was absolutely core to that and plants and so on and that we were complex so that's what I did I trained as a medical herbalist which allowed me to bring tradition with science and medicine bring them together to really bring the best of the knowledge and the resources we have to Mm. show us how to how to how to heal how to manage difficulty and uh, fast forward to now over the last, well, for the last 19 years, I've been really lucky to work in a hospital setting, running a clinic in dermatology, which is a kind of teaching clinic at Whips Cross Hospital, part of the dermatology team, uh, where students pay for it, actually, and observe medical herbalist students pay and observe, and the patients are referred by the team. Uh, and I also work in Breast Cancer Haven for the last 19 years, supporting women and men, for that matter, who have breast cancer and helping them through the uh, surgery or the chemotherapy side effects or um, radiotherapy and hormonal support when they're on hormone drugs. And I have a private practice because I realized that what we're doing, it's like, although I'm not a doctor, the word doctoring, you know, is really about teaching. And so what we do as practitioners is try to give our patients as much knowledge for themselves. It's very much based on self-care as well as mm. being a plant medicine and food as medicine. It's very much teaching them what they can do for themselves and helping them understand their bodies, really, and what plants work in them and what they can get from the supermarket to look after themselves or what they could even forage if they're into foraging. And I try to encourage them about that and always mention your fantastic book. Oh, thanks, Alex. (laughs) Not at all, because it is so good that it's about how do you use that plant and how can you how can you cook it and how do you identify it and so on. So it's such a fantastic resource. So um, teaching people one-to-one basically how to look after themselves is a key part of all our practitioner work but then I realized that we need to do that on a much bigger scale and that's where the vision for living medicine came in uh, which is to really reskill the public in in looking at how to how to look after themselves and that means building on and exchanging knowledge that all cultures have just like you know 
you were foraging. Every culture knew how to do that. I mean, mm. we all did it as hunter-gatherers, uh, albeit in a very different environment. Um, and so understanding that we are designed, you know, as complex creatures to eat a very complex diet, um, understanding about what that kind of food is and how to incorporate that as well as what you can get from the supermarket and open up our diet to the healing properties that plants have is absolutely central. And that's what we want to teach people like us, medical herbalists, teach that and share that knowledge around the world and revive, if you like, perhaps the, the value of food as medicine and foraged food as medicine. And not because it's very much um, downgraded in many cultures that could still do it. It's not seen as, seen as linked in some cultures with poverty. And it's such a tragedy that. Yeah, I'm afraid I've, I've heard that over and over again. It, it's, um, it's like it's an act of desperation or something to, to gather something from the wild. And um, whereas people link bought food with a sense of pride that they've got enough money and yeah, all that sort of thing. I it's, think it's also linked to... to the, you know the the rich i'm afraid i mean it's so interesting there's a great book or great thinker do you know him T um tim timothy morton english no i don't no. oh gosh he's he's um pretty pretty um radical mm. and he's written a book called uh well he's written several books he's actually an english professor at rice university in the states uh he's been over here he's talked to the rsa there's some really good youtubes videos of his interview interviews with him but he writes about nature dark ecology is one of his books mm. um he is uh he basically i don't know if he coined this term but somebody coined the term agri-logistics so what happened to us after we became after we were hunter-gatherers we then settled and started making hierarchies right yeah and uh, armies and etc Exactly. And what that meant is that you could then have power, you could gather power to yourself. Mm. Um, because I can collect more grain than you can. And, you know, this, these power structures developed. And perhaps also that's where the inequality grew between men over women and, and so mm. on. Um, it talks about nature, he talks about everything, and he helps you see different ways round. You know, he's very challenging in all kinds of ways. Um, Timothy Morton, Okay. Um, Check him out. Yeah, yeah I do. Yes, this uh, this idea that things went a bit belly up, basically in human human existence and human relationships and human relationships with nature, yeah. with rich over poor, power over a few, power of the few over the many. Yeah, and maybe the rich then said, "Well, we're special, and we're going to refine our food, and we're going to have food." You know, so this this snobbery over wild food i don't know i've got no evidence to this it'd be really interesting if somebody could find out if there were was evidence to this but whether that not foraging thing this looking down on foraging also uh, came at the same time as saying we're going to refine our food so mm. that we have white food not brown food and of course that was also the beginning probably of obesity or more obesity and contributing to ill health not the beginning of ill health because there are other problems but um yeah i think those two 
aspects may go hand in hand. Certainly now, you know, white food mm. is and, and lack of fiber because we don't have our whole food is is a major contributing factor to inflammatory disease. Yeah. I mean, it's weird, though, because things do just flop one way or the other, don't they? Like the number of things that were at one point poor man's food and then became rich man's food and so on. Mm. And then it it becomes a matter of fashion and maybe even a, a matter of marketing because um, you see with the wild spices and so on that are available in the hedgerows, we've got one in particular that tastes just like cloves, right? The, I know, the, you're thinking of the, Alexander's. Um, I'm thinking of Woodhaven's. Oh, Woodhaven's, yes. Or, or Herb Bennett, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, sure yeah. you must use that one. And, I don't actually, in my practice, I don't use it. It's not used okay. a lot. I'll, I'll, and maybe it really should be. I think we neglect some very important plants in, in our medicine. Mm. Well, it's it's possibly that it's just easier to use cloves. If it, But it, anything you'd use cloves for, uh, you'd use this for because it has that astringency and, and, and whatever else. But anyway, the point is that that was a, um, a herb that the poor would have used and known. And they'd also have known it as a flavoring. Um, and the rich would would not have known it or if they did they would have shunned it but of course our trade routes for spices which led to us accidentally forming the british empire one of the main spices they were trying to establish trade routes for was cloves so it's, it's just utterly bizarre that so the rich could have their um their sign of opulence that they had these expensive cloves from somewhere on the other side of the world um it's it's got nothing to do with the thing in itself i guess it's it's to do with that that desire to show themselves to be better and and um and above but well, um we we have that 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 problem problem we have that phenomenon in herbal medicine to some extent where because there's so much of an unbroken tradition with chinese herbal medicine for example um there are plants that were considered to be extremely valuable within Chinese herbal medicine. And therefore, the Western herbalists who've got their own tradition and could be using wood avens, for example, I am quite sure, um, sort of seem, you know, we seem to look to the East for the most mm. powerful plants. And mm. actually, that may not be the case at all. It's just that the, the tradition is unbroken and they've had good marketing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... Um I do wonder whether I mean you you um you mentioned Alexander's just there that I have thought a lot about that plant because I'm not aware of any uh, in depth I mean it's perhaps just because I haven't looked properly but I'm not aware of any in depth studies um, that show the um, medicinal constituents of Alexander's and yet I feel sure that it has got benefits and it, it it's amazing that there are still plants which haven't really been looked at that closely. I mean, there's a guy at a university near us, the University of Greenwich. He did some work on tansy a while back. Oh, yes. And really, he, he explored that way beyond anything that had happened before. And it's this very recent work. I could send you the papers, actually, if you're interested. Please but do. There's, I to know, yeah. Yeah, there's an old English herb. Um, uh, and he found, what did he find? He found that it had um, antiviral properties that affect the, the cold sore virus. Ah, herpes virus. So if, it, if it's anti- That's right. Yeah. Yes. So it'd be so, good shingles as well. You know, shingles is right. a herpes virus. Varicella zoster, chickenpox, you know, all of this. 
Amazing. And there's, so there's a plant that grows some. It's not particularly common, but where you find it, you can find a lot. And it's, it's an old English herb. Um, now, the extraordinary thing is that I had a meeting with this guy and we were talking about research possibilities. Nothing ever came of it, at least hasn't yet. But it's such an interesting guy to talk to. And because I have um, quite a big supply of tansy, we, we were talking about where you could go with this. You know, is, is there a way that you could put it into food or probably not appropriate as a as a as a food. But um, when you're looking at the herpes viruses, just treatment, um, other kind of treatment methods. But the weird thing is, two days later, I started getting a coleslaw. No. So funny. Get that tingling sensation, you yeah. know, exactly. on your lip. And you think, oh, coleslaw. I thought, well, how bizarre. So I just got, which is probably not the right medium at all, but the only thing I could think of to get this stuff on was, was Vaseline. So I scrunched loads of tansy up in this Vaseline, mixed it together and put it on. Yes. And it wiped it out. The, the culture never developed. So I, I had the opportunity to prove it right brilliant. there and then. Yeah. But you could, you could, that's a brilliant way to do it. Um, it, because you say mashed it into the Vaseline. That's yeah. right. You could have chewed it, of course, and, but then you need something to stick it on, and that's where the Vaseline's really good. The Vaseline just held it there. It seemed it to make sense, it. but I wasn't sure if it was very good at communicating the, the uh, active constituents. But anyway, it, in this case, it works. So. Yes, brilliant. Well, funnily enough, one of the things I use, and you, that is a really good, I shall try it now. Um, I'll have to find some tansy because we're very badly off for wild plants. I can tell you around. I can send you some. I can just send you a little envelope. Would you? Tansy, yeah, yeah. fresh or dried? From it's dried. Dry. It's it's the little flower buttons. That's what I used. Yeah. Ah, so you mean you used it dried yourself, or did you use it fresh? That's right. I used dried. We we got quite a ah. supply of it because we're 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 marketing that as a spice. It's a very interesting spice. Oh, great. Yeah, I'd love to know. I'd love to try it then. That's really interesting. I was thinking you were taking it fresh. So it's the actual seeds, is it? Or flower? No, flowers. It's actually the flower. But so it's a, it, as you know, it's a, it's a daisy family one. So yes, what you've got, yes. it looks like the middle of a daisy. It's those, um, um, the, uh, yeah, the disc florets. The disc florets, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it was an interesting conversation I was having with this guy because what, what we were basically looking at is this kind of food as medicine thing. I was, I was trying to talk to him as someone with really uh, sort of cutting edge. I, I say that because he's, he's, he's questioning European medicinal plants. Why, why does this work? Could it work for something else? He's, he's doing some very close research on that sort of thing. Um, and I was thinking, well, I wonder, I wonder if there's a way to work with that to develop food and drink, which would enable people to get this stuff in their diet. So, for example, um, we've been looking a lot at hawthorn, Alex, and just thinking, <laughs> uh, and it's crazy. I'm sitting right next to a box full of hawthorn blossom, and, and um, oh. I just not, I have not managed to form the habit because I always tell people if everybody drank a tea made out of hawthorn blossom every day <laughs> or ate some hawthorn berries every day, they'd be much less likely to have these um, heart-related conditions. And I, you know, I'm far from being a, a herbalist, but, but that is one point I've managed to pick up. Which... Do, you know, do you know something? First of all, I must ask you the name of this guy. And secondly, I, um, I, I, was, having, I was writing a, an article about... Um, uh, for the British Holistic Medicine Association, they have a journal called the Journal of Holistic Health, and I was writing about um, the blue zone or about nature, nature connection, and right. the ER nature, 
you know, that we yeah. are nature. And what does that mean? What does it mean to say we are nature? Anyway, looking at the blue zones, and there was a, an explorer or writer, author, who, who identified uh, at least five so-called blue zones around the world where people live to a very ripe old age, over 100, right. and, um, and live happy, healthy lives and very long lives. And he identified about nine, at least nine common elements between those zones. One is the famous Okinawa, Japan, but they're also in the south of Japan. There are other communities that live very long lives. And they include eating beans and pulses, but drinking herb tea every day. Right. So I'm not sure that you would necessarily have Hawthorne. I mean, actually, actually, Miles, I think it's as much about eating enough fiber. I don't think, you know, for example, you couldn't just drink Hawthorne tea and have a crap diet. That's not No. <laughs> so no, it, no. And maybe you don't need powerful medicine like Hawthorne every day. Right. You know? But I think to have back to this hunter-gatherer thing, you know, would you have the same thing every day? No, you'd be having different things depending on the season. So it's all about rhythm and season right. and responding to what's going on, the temperature, yeah. if you've got an infection, you know. But, but certainly having um, a variety of herb tea over the yeah. year is a great idea. No, I've, I've, I feel I've slightly had my knuckles wrapped there that because, because <laughs> you, you have definitely made me think there that... that I'm I'm actually thinking industrially. I'm thinking mm. this one thing will mm. yeah, and that's that's not. Um, and generally speaking, I think I'm I'm probably moving away from the idea that that I was pursuing at that point because um, I read this book, and you could you can um, check out a podcast we did with this guy, Fred Provenza. Um, he wrote a book called Nourishment. Oh, love the sound of that. Yes. You, you will. You'll absolutely love this book. There's so there's so much research. He 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 basically observed grazing animals and saw how oh. they not only nourish themselves but medicate themselves. Yes, and that they so. learn to know um, what has benefited them by this thing he calls flavor feedback mechanisms or post ingestive feedback. So when they're deficient in something and then they eat it, they get this kind of almost like inner thumbs up from somewhere deep in their body that says now I've got what I wanted and they're able to make the link between the flavor that they experienced yes and that sense of satisfaction but he makes this devastating point to all of this nutritional supplement business yes that it's, that it's actually if you fortify your uh your rice and bread with this and that you will never be able to have um this post-ingestive feedback mechanism telling you well actually this has got thiamine in it last time you ate this food you got the satisfaction you 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 needed um well the sense of satisfaction that you'd had the thiamine that you needed or whatever else it might be so the same thing that that when we dump like bits of maca powder or whatever in our cereal and mix it all up together our body then cannot actually make a beeline for something because you've confused it. You, you just put a little bit of everything into, into these dishes with, with nutrition supplements. Whereas what an animal would do would, would be to eat the thing in its own right, like a dandelion. And so 
what we need to do is, is again, it's like the industrial model just doesn't work. We need to become familiar with foods, become familiar with the flavor of foods. And then we have this smorgasbord spread out in front of us um, in the landscape. And we say, well, I'm, I now fancy a kiwi fruit. I now fancy that. The point is taking extracts from things and then mixing it all together in, in your loaf of bread or in your, in your muesli or whatever is, is basically killing that ability for the body to form bonds with with specific plants you know these bonds of knowledge that say okay i now need some of this particular mineral this micronutrient or this phytonutrient it all points back to the same thing is that we need to we need to be familiar with actual foods and um real real recipes that where you can taste what it is you're eating and anyway i i kind of get that i I completely get the idea of the 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 post-ingestive uh, feedback mechanism, because I think that may be linked linked to some kind of opiate and endorphin, uh, you know, the sense of something working, and that's what you need. Cindy mm. Engels, isn't it Cindy Engels who writes about this as well, as well, about self-medication, animals and self-medication? Mm. Mm. I'm Rich. not familiar with her, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, I think it's her. I might be muddling up about... Yeah, she wrote Cindy Engels, E-N-G-E-L-S, Wild something or other. Um, she came to speak to us, actually, as medical herbalist years and years ago. Fascinating. Mm. Um, but uh, so there's, it could well be that, you see, even the most nature in these organisms, whether it's a human organism or a so-called simpler organism, has worked out what it needs for reciprocity. So for yeah. me, that word reciprocity yeah, absolutely. is really where it's at. Yeah. And in order to do something that's going to further your survival, and not only survival but thriving, mm. it needs to feel good, right? You yep. know. So I think pleasure is at the heart, should be really, if you can, should yeah. be at the heart of prescriptions of food, which is why, you know, being together around a table, eating together or thing together or making things together as you do on you know on your workshops it's hu- it's hugely pleasurable and that makes you feel better and we now know that that helps us you know it actually improves your immune responses and makes you healthier so these single um these mechanisms i am sure have got you know opiate and endorphin feedback loops just yeah. when we defecate you know you a baby defecates not because it's painful pain is telling you something something's not quite right here but defecating that it gives you that sense of you know you've got lots of opiate receptors in the anus and the rectum right. for good reason you know which is why things get sometimes a bit muddled up but you know it's there to say this is feels a good function this is functional for me it's having a useful function so you get a feedback mechanism to do it um so that's that, but, that I'm, yeah. but I'm not sure that I completely go along with the idea that therefore you shouldn't put maca powder or baobab powder or whatever into your because that's that's still in its complex form. Where I would agree, it's not a great idea to take out a so-called active ingredient out of the 500 fantastic chemicals that there are that that plant has produced phytochemicals necessarily that that plant has produced to defend itself and take out one call it an, a vital the active ingredient and then give it as a, give it as a supplement you know if there's overwhelming evidence that that's beneficial well great you know because you'd be mad not to 
you know, like curcumin is supposedly the active ingredient of turmeric. It is the pigment and it's really important, but it's not maybe the only one. And it, we like to think of synergy and all these elements working yeah. together in the whole food. But I don't see why adding a powder of maca, for example, which is a whole food just ground down, like you're saying, here's your tanacetum bud, your, your, your tansy bud. Yeah. It's just whether whether you could still taste it. I guess that was the point. If, you don't if, need to. You don't need to taste it. Funnily enough, if it's bitters and there are got taste receptors in your in your lung and possibly in all um, recept all 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 tracts in the body may have or even all cells may have bitter taste receptors on them. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe I've over extrapolated from that because I see what you're saying. Once you've once you've eaten that maca powder, your your body will still be able to make the connection because it will be able to taste it even if you're not particularly um consciously tasting it in in the mouth it's just it's just that um yeah it's just to provide that that opportunity for the body to make the link basically and and that's how i've begun to question because i you know i I like have a I thought, well you know i could get uh a lot of different things into one meal but i guess that's what we do with with recipes anyway yeah we do. we do. We put we do. lots of spices and herbs and, and yet the body still, um, I think, could nudge you in the right direction. But anyway, that's that. That's the um, that's the train of thought that this chap's work got me onto was the idea that, you know, we're still very much animals with mm. with wise bodies. He talks a lot about the yes. wisdom of the body. Exactly. I completely agree. I talk about that as well and saying and reminding patients and people that we've got. 4.5 billion years practically well very nearly you know life developed uh, yeah. about 4.5 billion or 4.6 billion years ago and we have those cells not the very very first apparently but the next which is the last universal uh, luca the last universal common ancestor cell yeah. in our bodies you know it's it's developed since then but that it's an elder it's an elder, and we've got it in every, you know, some of that knowledge in every single cell, direct line, four point. I mean, it's these little cortex of our brain that we've developed as so-called homo sapiens that has got these bright ideas of its own that's well, forgotten to listen. To, it's, it's fine, but, you know, it, if it forgets to listen to that older wisdom, which is what do I need to heal, and also decorrupt it as it were uncorrupt it from the sugar and refined carbohydrate and and so on and and embrace the tastes of bitter for example yeah. which used in judicious amounts we can't eat lots and lots of bitters but we can eat some and listening to what the body wants i think that's where i would wholeheartedly agree with fred and what you're talking about well, it was me with the with the Mac a bit, by the way. I don't want to drag Fred. Fred, Fred starts with this criticism of the the general fortification of food with with single compounds, and I think we that's yes. non controversial. Single compounds, but, absolutely um, no, it's all wrong. Where's he based, and who is he exactly, Fred? Where, well, where is he? He's a, he's a professor of um, mm, actually, I can't actually recall what his official. He's a professor emeritus of something or other, but. Uh, it's in a department of wildlands and ecology in in the states. Really, um, is, uh, you? I should hook you, definitely you two up. But but listen Seriously. to his podcast. You'll get the you'll get the. Uh, will I will. Of it. But I I love what you've just said there about the 
the the link of pleasure to all of this. Um, yes. And and I just wanted to uh, surmise from that that um, Dr. Alex Led will not be prescribing any nasty medicines. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could say that. And anyway, not Dr. Not Dr. Alex Led. And yet she does provide nasty. But of course, they'll say, oh, oh. that nasty tastes nice. Ah. Well, so there's still a pleasure thing there. Okay, yeah, it's just, it's just. Um, yeah, well, yeah no, is, I agree with you. Bitterness, bitterness, you can develop a taste for it. You really. I, I like bitter. I do That's like bitter now. No, you, yeah. you would, because you've been tasting everything since God was a boy. But you know, the, for, for I have to That's say, not true. I've had to go through a process of, of, of acclimatizing myself to a lot of these strong flavors, and to the point where I can now pick up dandelions and and snack on them. I, I would have, 10 years ago, I'd have said, you'd be mad to pick up a dandelion and snack. I'm never going to do that. You need it in a salad with this dressing and that dressing. But now I do just eat this stuff. Okay, so, well, here's another factor, young Miles Irving, and that is that as you get older, my theory, and lots of people seem to think this is true, and I don't know whether there's anything to back this up, is that our digestive function, everything becomes less efficient. So therefore, we begin to acquire tastes for the things that will help to promote our digestive function, and bitters are one of those, among other things. Okay. Well, there's so another explanation. Yeah. Exactly. The yeah. aging process. <laughs> but yeah. you know what? Just to make everybody also, you know, not think that we herbalists or foragers are... Um, kind of super different in any way is that I definitely will gag at some plants like for example eating uh, if I put too much capsicum tincture chili tincture yeah which is unbelievably strong into a mix I mean I really just cannot take it so right. it's right. and I love hot chili I, I probably can take, take more hot chili than other people's so it's something you know there it's not that if you like natural to make tinctures and they're the things that are you know they do change it does adding alcohol macerating a plant uh for two or three weeks and then pressing it out you know it just does change the nature because you're only getting you're getting a good profile of the plant out good profile of its many phytonutrients and other elements but um it's not always to making a good taste so yeah it's not all it's all not nice tastes that's for sure well, I'm fascinated by when you started describing what living medicine is about, that it is primarily about getting people to get medicinal plants into their diets. I, th I think that's really interesting rather than teaching them how to make tinctures. And, and Oh, yeah. Living yeah. medicine really is, is about saying, uh, and this is what I realized when I started as a medical herbalist, when I started training, um, I suddenly discovered through fantastic people like Simon Mills, who has been a great father of plant medicine for us and, a, and a, 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 one of the main educators about plant medicine, is that this tradition of plants as medicine or food as medicine is, of course, is worldwide. Yeah. Every culture has done it. Just like you're saying, you know, it's a development from the animals, self-medicating. Human beings have also self-medicated. And so every culture knows how to look after itself. It doesn't mean to say they've got all the answers, but they do know how to look after themselves and how to use plants as medicine and food as medicine. But that knowledge is not being valued mm. in the 20th century with the rise of so-called modern reductionist, so-called modern medicine. So really living medicine was about saying, look, let's share this knowledge. Let's create a great world medicinal garden 
let's say in London, where all the cultures come, it doesn't have to be in London, but that would be where people from all around the world come mm. as a wonderful uh, complement to Chelsea Physic Garden, which is a fantastic library, but not a hands-on people's medicine garden, and mm. a fantastic complement to Kew Gardens, and have a living, working plant medicine garden representing the cultures food as medicine cultures, food and plant medicine cultures from around the world, which is actually co-created with the public. So mm. every day, so that we'd grow this garden, we'd embed the knowledge, we'd build on the knowledge that's already out there, value it, prevent it from disappearing, link it to good evidence base to say, well, you know, myths arise to say that this is good for you when actually it might not be because we've learned more about it have more respect, however, for tradition and get people to grow this on their, the public, to grow it on their windowsills and schools and all around the country, build up the knowledge too, pull that together, make a great garden, link it to medicinal gardens worldwide, and the world's visitors will come and see where their black rice, their red rice, their tansy, uh, their local plants, insofar as we can in our climate, uh, how they grow, what they, mm. where they grow, how they grow, and what do we do with them? So somehow, crack the 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 nut, uh, the the challenge of the sort of mistake. Well, also, but crack the challenge in a design terms. It's a really, really difficult one to have to create a working garden mm. as also a garden where people come tramping round, you know, in large numbers. Um, to see plants and pick pick things and turn them into medicine and have a, tr a really amazing thing, Miles. Imagine the rhizotron, uh, uh, you know, which they've got at Kew, but it doesn't really show quite what it is, which is what's the world below ground yeah. that you know is so important mm. to the, the symbiosis of all those different nematodes and insects and mycorrhiza and soil microorganisms and so on that are working with those plant hairs on the roots of plants to deliver mm. sugars, sorry, to deliver minerals to the plant hairs and the plant for energy. I beg your pardon, I'm talking nonsense. To deliver minerals to the plant in return for the sugars that the plant yeah, yeah. Is and probably many, many other things that are going on there in that lovely reciprocal way. But to see that happening at, at, the, at the root level, to see how does this extraordinary life go on under the soil that to us is invisible, but is a brilliant way of showing what is so important to complexity and diversity. Why does biodiversity matter so much? Because without it, the plant wouldn't be what it is. Yeah. And would we? It's the foundation of life, isn't it? Complex. It's completely the foundation of life. So being able to show that and help everybody, uh, including me, go, wow, you know. And interestingly, I don't know if you saw, there was a lovely documentary the other day um, about Westmoreland and the apples. And, um, no, M I didn't see it. No. M9, you know, the, 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 um, the grafting onto the, the main apple um, stalk. What is it? Main apple root. Uh, that 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 Westmoreland developed for coxes and so on, uh, okay. and, and all other apples have used this. Um, and they developed a rhizotron, you know, a, a great big underground 
um, office where they saw they they planted trees on either side of this corridor and they had um, um, boards over these glass panels and they could watch they didn't want to expose it to light because it wouldn't work but once they could take it off briefly to look at the shape of the root structure mm. beneath the plant and then look at you know how these roots were working and what was going on down there in this other world the soil world and we need to do the same sort of thing really i think that's amazing like the 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 um do you know there's a thing that i think we're involved with when we start talking about things like this it's called making the invisible visible exactly i'm saying that all the time that's what that's what i've learned in my work in in plant medicine making the invisible visible including our gut microbes for example because all of this stuff that underlies that you don't see but but you see you do see it because everything you see is is supported by these these hidden realms of you know beneath the skin beneath the soil correct and and the and the um the hidden complexities really uh, because anything that you know me saying a word now like the word now that's <laughs> that's a that's a visible thing or a tangible thing but behind it is all this extraordinary complexity of neurons firing and so on so you, you know yes very good example we're just we're just um because people see if you just look at the surface you just hear the word whatever my word was i forgot what it was now 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 it was now um (laughs) and the trouble is in our in our world we're we're just skin deep it really is we're just thinking oh it's just that thing on the surface so then then you can say, okay, well, we can make more things on the surface with with stuff that's as simple as that. Then, mm-hmm. so we make a machine that that just churns out one thing. You think, mm-hmm. see, but, but 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 what I think the case that we're making by talking about the stuff that's underneath is is with that's the critique. We're, yes. we're, we're saying, guys, you, you can't do that. Yeah. You think you can just produce food through mechanisms and totally simplifying everything. To make it more efficient but you can't you're actually undermining the foundation of life so you're so so right i mean it's this obsession well that's where this agri logistics that timothy morton is is talking about has kind of taken us you know allowed the powerful who want to get more powerful and richer to yeah. and capitalism to get so out of hand you know because it's concentrating this uh, it's turned it's how can we get a make a quick buck basically and without consulting um the long-term consequences i mean it's deeply deeply um what's the word in um uh, wrong, well wrong <laughs> and uh to 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 go and change the nature of food yeah. to simplify it to grow it fast not allow complexity to develop in the plant or the animal for that matter uh well particularly not the animal that's also a bad thing and not allow it to live a full life and then flog it to us with half food uh, without its phytonutrients you know because it's been oversimplified to make a quick buck for a few i mean this is it's it's a very it's it's that we didn't take time we've 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 suddenly speeded ourselves up so much and got greedy 
that um, we've lost, we have lost the plot. You know, we've we've moved away from design. And as you say, it's so much of it is invisible and it needs to be divined, perhaps in other ways, and taken time to understand what it is we need to thrive. Um, that, yeah, we've we've lost touch with those rough rules of thumb that nature has has devised you know that nature along the lines that nature works yeah i mean it's it's um it's the two words that you keep coming back to reciprocity and uh and complexity um there's a point of contact between these uh complex systems whether it's a person or a community or or a landscape or whatever and the funny thing is the point of contact is quite simple, you know, like the act of eating. That that's that's quite exactly. a simple exactly. There's the simplicity. Exactly. I don't know. We've we've tried to simplify the, the complex bits. And you know, I was depressing my daughter on a long journey yesterday. Um <laughs> we had to do some serious falling around to kind of snap out of the, the gloom. I managed to guess. <laughs> I was trying to explain industrial food to her and she's going, Dad, that's so depressing. <laughs> oh, how old is she now, Miles? How ten. Because I think if, she, if she, I remember seeing her when she was a baby. Yeah. Some, yeah. How interesting. Oh. So yeah. Well, it is. So now she's at the point to to, to have to uh, engage yeah. with these things in the world. But uh, you know, I was saying to her, look, um, it's it's like we've okay, so we simplified land. Yes. No more biodiversity there. We're just going to grow wheat, kill everything else. Then we simplified food. No complex nutrients there. Uh, but then we go and introduce that into our own bodies, and all of a sudden we're we're causing ourselves to break down. And it's just it's just like a man standing there with a gun, <laughs> firing at its own his own knees. You know, just like you must be mad. Why? <laughs> I, you're right. You're right. You're right. But that's because people now people like you and you know this is not this is not surprising. You know that people are realizing that this isn't healthy, and. Um, uh, people are voting with their feet. That's the point. And the young people, you know, like your daughter and the 20 year olds, as well as the slightly older ones, are saying they've grown up with the idea that complexity is really important. And yeah. hopefully they will bring that pendulum back to the center a bit more. I think they will. You know, it's that or die, isn't it, really? So <laughs> I don't think we've got much option, not, you know, killing off 75% of insects in Germany. Um, for example, and you know this huge loss of biodiversity and oversimplification of food. It's uh, the message is getting out there, and funnily enough, some of us are, from the health perspective, are getting together in the, at the end of April to talk about real food, to brainstorm what is real food, and develop a campaign to um, uh, you know say to the government, look, this is what real food is. We've got to decide what that is, and how right. do we get it because you still got this you know high tech um oversimplification of food you know how do we and maybe there's some value you know there's some value in science it's not all bad but when it comes to oversimplifying our food and not allowing those phytonutrients to develop and a complex array of phytonutrients that has developed in relation to a plant's complex uh, constantly changing and responsive, you know, with responsive uh, mm. chemical production to its environment. Mm. When you don't allow that, you know, for example, with hydroponics, uh, we can't second guess what complexity we need. That's the point. We're well, all complex. 
So we want nature to do that for us. We need to have more respect for that. I just think when it comes to science, there's there's um, there's definitely no need to chuck the baby out with the bathwater. The tr- the trouble is we've just been misapplying these tools Correct. because science science it essentially does what we're talking about. It makes the invisible visible. Correct. Correct. But then, it's for some it. reason, we use we 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 use it like okay, we've we've seen how that works. Now let's hijack it. I mean, but that's a completely unnecessary move. We can take this insight that we have into the underlying processes of life, and and use that as a way in. Let's get into that complexity. Let's not let's not be sabotaging it. Exactly. I'm definitely pro science in that sense, but like it's it's not this not this thing that 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 we're just after tools to, to to be more powerful, as you pointed out. That's yeah. that's what this whole Descartes and and um, Bacon. For those of you that are listening, you want to go and Google those two guys. They were like the founders of modern science, and they basically promoted a a worldview that made the whole universe and the natural world and the human body to to be a machine. And that's that's a category error. You know, you can right. you can make a tool or a machine if you want. The planet isn't one, and 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 neither are you. So, um, unfortunately, that category error had had an ulterior motive behind it, because people wanted to turn uh, you know the means of production into something efficient, so they could make more money and be more powerful. So we had industrialized production of of um, cloth and fabric was probably the first ones, and and then they wanted to have mechanical models of society, so that people would just do what what we wanted them to do and and work in our factories and things like that but it's it's all it's it it's um i don't know uh, at the danger of getting off topic here but I, i'm not sure that it is you know i looked the other day that, that that somebody was describing the word ignorant and just pointed out the obvious fact that the word ignorant contains another word ignore so when you are ignorant, it's not because <laughs> poor you, nobody ever told you. It's because you had your fingers in your ears going, yeah. I don't want to know. Because yeah. if I knew that, I would have to face up to the obvious consequence of this train of thought and this course of action. If I know that, then all of a sudden I turn around and do this. So, you know, I think there's a willful ignorance in this um, mechanical model um, that, that chooses not to look at, at how the essence of life is reciprocity because then if it's reciprocity i can't be in control anymore exactly exactly so um and i think that the interesting thing about science is that it is a really useful given that we have gone down this whole mechanistic route route um it is nevertheless a very useful tool and it has taught us a lot given that that's the mode we're in but there were other ways of knowing and, you know, somebody like you and your team and uh, me to some extent, and I wish I could do more of it, um, who are spending time with nature, with its design every day. And how much more was that true of the hunter gatherer or anybody else who's still indigenous, who's living with nature mm. and learning to live with it? The knowing that comes with that is something else. You know, it's yeah. a different level of knowing yeah, um, but we've you know not done badly with our reductionist science, and it does tell us a lot, and it certainly has given us the invisible. Well, really, but some people kind of demonise it and say, oh, you know, it's not, it's art versus science, and I don't see that at all. I think it's the most magical, wonderful thing. It shows you mystery, really, science. You know, 
Well, I'm I'm going to um, actually go a bit further in defending science because I'm I'm really convinced that it's the it's the application, i.e., technology, and where we go unthinkingly into using very powerful tools that that, that actually disrupt existing systems. Right? I think that's the problem. Science itself, i.e. the insights into the underlying structure of things, actually, if you look at the great scientific discoveries, they have nothing to do with what people expand as scientific method. Yeah, People say scientific method is, okay, we have a hypothesis that we're testing, and based on what we see happening in the real world, we now know that X, Y, and Z is true. The point is that the coalface of science is the generation of those hypotheses in the first place. Somebody actually has a flash of inspiration to, to make that happen. So scientists are shamans. Mm. The real breakthroughs, like Einstein yes. describes how he understood what he understood with the theory of relativity, had nothing to do with trial and error scientific method. Mm. It had to do with something that he suddenly knew. And I feel like that knowledge is actually the same one, Alex, that, yes. that, that, that we get when... Somehow a real scientist that's making a theoretical breakthrough is touching the universe, is touching totally. the, 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 the world and the earth in a way that he's listening and or she is yeah. listening. And, exactly. and finding that, that, that moment of inspiration is just the same as when a hunter knows there's a deer over there, be still, wait, etc. It's the yes. same kind of intuitive knowing. I totally would agree with that. It's the intuitive knowing. And, and it's, you know, Richard Feynman again, fantastic thinker you know who was also you know a physicist who was also an artist and mm. you know he was he was open to many ways of thinking so you're absolutely right it's in touch with something else it's not just it's not a slavish thing it's a creative process good science and all the good scientists would agree with that i mean completely i'm, I'm just going to quote something that i'm reading this little book Nick Crane, Nicholas Crane. You are here, yeah. Lovely, geographer, yeah. former. He's he presented Coast on yeah. the yeah. telly, and what's been so interesting about complexity in science is that the geologists, the volcanologists, the meteorologists, unlike I'm afraid some at least of the medical scientists, mm. driven as they are very much by the pharmaceutical profit motive. Um, have been dealing with complexity, mm. which is very difficult. <laughs> and what Nick says in his little book, which is a wonderful, it's called You Are Here, A Brief Guide to the World, and it's a distillation of his his knowledge as a geographer. And geography is now a very complex subject. You know, it's mm. taken in so many different aspects. And he's talking about, he's describing life, you know, how did life begin and what is life and so on. Um, and it's a sweep through, you know, 4.5 billion years. And his lovely quote right at the beginning is saying, is, you know, celebrating this complexity. And he says, um, so it's taken some 4.6 billion years for a cosmic swirl of gas and dust, dust to evolve into a planet fit for butterflies and children. It's a lovely phrase, lovely sentence. This blue dot in the black cosmos now hosts an estimated 8.7 million species. This intricate web of life exists because Earth operates as a system in which everything is connected and interdependent. 
The word complex does not begin to describe the workings of this system. Indeed, it is so diverse and complicated that no computer currently comes close to creating a model. Hmm. Such is the urgency of the challenge that thousands of scientists are working on what geologist Richard Alley dubbed in 2000 an operator's manual for the planet, a clearer understanding of how the various components of Earth, the Earth system work and how they are wired together and depend on each other. Not sure about wired together myself, but anyway, wired yeah. together. But that really does sum up, you know, we have got just an infant's understanding so we need to basically have a bit more respect and just keep remembering that diversity and complexity. Well, I suppose the beauty of it is, although although we're trying not to give uh, science too much of a bad press, um, nevertheless, um, we don't need uh, a scientist's perspective to understand the two points that we keep coming back to, that, that the life is complex but what makes it flourish and thrive is is reciprocity. So it it's our relation back in um, back in that that complex um, fabric of life mm. that is the answer. So like we don't need some guy in a lab to 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 say, hey, I've just worked out this formula and this <laughs> this works with that, and that's why that's happening. Hey, listen, if we got back in to the biosphere as opposed to standing outside of it and and really behaving as if I don't know, we'd either declared war on it or we didn't like it very much or 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 we thought we'd had a better idea or something like that, which is what the problem with with science as we see it now is is that it is where we go with it, that it makes us it makes it stand makes us stand outside for for purely the reason of bad motives i.e we'd rather be in control than have to trust and and be a part of and and not get everything our own way um but anyway i just wanted to say that because i'd like to um turn the conversation onto onto that of your um very wonderful book and the the penguin page uh devoted to your book Alex it, it has the following statement which I'm not sure if you said it or they said it but <laughs> it might have been there but we'll see <laughs> it says root to stem is a seasonal and holistic approach to health that puts plants herbs and nature at the heart of how we live and eat but this is this is the the one I wanted to draw out it's a new kind of guide that links individual health to our communities to our communities and the planet's health to sustain us all so it's good it's, it's i did write yes you did write that yeah i'm because, glad to hear it's there because i haven't seen that bit so i'm very glad to hear that yes i think if if, if ever there was a manifesto for what what we need uh, yeah. that's it it's not it's as i say it's not something that a um a scientist is going to run a big computer analysis to understand it's that we need to link our own health with the health of communities and 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 the planet so well, that's that i'm very very happy you, you pointed that out because one of the things that the book doesn't really show and particularly with that um, subtitle which says natural remedies and recipes is that actually it's as much about the, the, the sitting down and eating together so what I've done in the book is include events like the celebrations um, you know Easter and tried Easter and Kwanzaa which is a wonderful a new actually newish pan-african uh, celebration after Christmas. Mm. 
which celebrates and reminds us of the most important fundamental um, human uh, values, yeah, which uh, which are celebrated there and around Africa and in Africa, but not just Africa, of course. Um, so remembering there are rituals uh, you brought up you know you mentioned the word shaman remembering which shamans are basically reconnecting us to you know the the, the deeper world perhaps or uh, the imaginative world um, yeah. and so reconnecting us to these rituals and celebrations that all cultures have mm. it's a very very important part of human beings coming together so it's connecting each other it's connecting us to each other and, and raising the, the the tone. And in fact, one of my really great teachers is somebody called Maladoma Patrice Somme, who came from the north of Ghana, in a in a from a from a group of um, people who were, as he would say, addicted to ritual. Yeah. <laughs> and he he is a great teacher of African wisdom to the West. Now you can say Africa is a very big place, and there are many many different cultures within that so-called continent um but he he wrote a book uh he wrote several books actually and he did a lot of work around with men and initiation and so on but that idea that ritual is what binds what human beings right. have done to to help bind us together and find that common common unifying factor and and celebration and and raise us up together in a way that's what it is and raise spirits in that coming together and food is often at the heart of that and plants are often at the heart of that so that's really what i just tried to bring in because it's about reconnecting us not just to nature but to each other i think it's wonderful and i just just for anyone listening that's thinking this is getting a bit spooky if we talk about ritual um just perhaps perhaps pull out a couple of examples like putting candles on a birthday cake singing happy birthday and blowing them out. I mean, that's that's a wonderful ritual that binds us together, right? Yeah. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe um, you know, cooking scrambled eggs the way your mother used to. Um, that's, that's, that's the feeling I've been getting. I've been thinking a lot about cooking as this thing, which just got so many bonds there, you know, mm -hmm. bonds between you and people that lived before, bonds between you and people that live now, bonds between you and the plants. Mm bonds within your own body that are for i mean just you know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of good loving stuff there well with... i think often this lack of connection is yeah. often at the heart of illness it's not the only thing not you know when you get a cold it's not that suddenly you have to think oh what am i not connected to you know but this sense of connection can you know isolation is one of the problems of our age and something as simple as cooking something yeah. as simple as as somebody said to me and i I think I was inspired by that and put it in the book. Um, if I'm feeling alone, maybe I could just make the simplest, cheapest, but delicious, and all the, the cheapest food is often the most delicious uh, and cheapest, um, minestrone, for example, and pick up a phone and invite a few people. Yeah. That is a ritual. As you say, just cooking is a ritual. Sitting down at a table is a ritual. But being aware of, yes, just having that connection it ritual is very often about a reconnecting to yeah. other people isn't it or to food and it makes you feel more real because 
when you take talk about, you know, I'm using this plant to cook it, simple cooking a carrot, for example. Let's say it's mm. a black carrot, because that's apparently how carrots started out. And they're called witches' noses, by the way. You get oh, them right. at Sainsbury's and they're black all the way through. <laughs> I believe that somebody told me that's how they started out, not the orange version, um, with very important pigments to defend the carrot against the UV light and so on, although mm. it's underground. So I have to find out a little bit more about that. But um, cooking a carrot or cooking anything, you know, so things that have been done, you know, it connects us to our ancestors, to people who've gone before. This is a ritual that's gone on for years, hundreds and thousands of years of cooking something. Mm. And we're part of that, you know, we're part of a bigger world. And I think that is an important part of feeling, feeling connected is a part of health, perhaps. Yeah. And, and I think there's so much scope now, as we've got a lot of people who are exploring these ways of life uh, that that we've perhaps missed out on mm. you know i mean i think a lot of people alive now are conscious of the fact that their grandparents were much more connected than they are and uh, and um but yet we're trying to get back into that that way of being which is tremendously exciting i think because it means we get to reform culture you know we get to build stuff from scratch you know um, and in in light of that, I just wanted to tell you, Alex, about some some thoughts I've been having, um, which which kind of tap into this idea of, of uh, developing ritual. Well, they are um, kind of uh, things around specific wild foods in the spring. Mm -hmm. So tapping the birch sap. Mm to me is a very kind of moving and meaningful thing. Well, it's not so much tapping it, but when you get the first few, um, you know, milliliters of sap and then you stand by a birch tree and drink it, mm. knowing that what's happening there is you are participating in the sap rising. You're participating mm. in the awakening of the land. Well, then to connect that with another thing, which is happening just now everywhere, that you go now um where there are hedges and shrubs you'll see the cherry blossom beginning to blossom these mm. white blossoms coming out on a fairly still uh non not so green landscape you know not many of the buds have come out on the trees and and um so the white is very very striking and shortly after that the slow is going to come but these are all stone fruit and they're related to the almond yep now, in Israel, um, the almond is called um, something which basically means awakening. Oh. There's, there's, there's a word uh, which means awaken, or also to watch over, um, which is shaked, I think. And then shaked, I could have got this the wrong way around, is, is almond. So the almond is called the awakening tree. Mm -hmm. As a result, the, the uh, people in the Middle East will eat things with almonds in them in the springtime mm, and it's a way of participating that they say well now we see that the sign of the almond with the blossom coming out awakening in the land again yes. we will eat this almond which yes. is the eventual thing so yes so so it's like um eating the almond the uh, the blossoms that come off the tree so the, the the nicest way we've found to do that is to just do a pancake 
Yes. And put some slow blossom or some cherry plum blossom on there with a, with a bit of sugar or maple syrup if if you like that. And 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 there you go, eating something. Yes. Which, is, which has that that meaning in that sense of the lands waking up. Correct. Um, and 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 the same goes for standing by that tree and 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 drinking the birch sap. You're at that stage in the in the in the cycle of life. So. I think we can have a lot of fun and, and as you said, joy and pleasure um, in these things um, just, to, just to create culture and share That's this kind of thing. To create culture. Now, you've absolutely put your thing or recreate it because it is remembering what people did. And that's where, that's very much what the book is trying to do, actually, is right. that, that it was very wonderful to be asked to write this book because I hadn't really, even though that's what Living Medicine, the great centre would be about seasons because obviously nature is dictating that what's available and what can we use and what should we use um this is about i was thinking much more about seasons and in fact cleavers for example which is now springing up ah, yes. along with along with the almond blossoms and the rose family blossoms um like hawthorn and so on and slow the, the beauty I remember of when we were in Canterbury with you guys, you leading that you know wonderful workshop where we went and picked all sorts of things, including knotweed and creepers yeah. and so on. And we were making a spring. Or we talked a lot about doing that spring tonic yeah. where, where you put the cleavers, the fresh young cleavers, which is otherwise known wow. as grass or sticky willy yeah. or whatever, the one that sticks to you, mm. into water overnight and you leave it to you crush it a bit and you leave mm. it basically to, to infuse in cold water and then you drink the spring tonic and it's yeah. a cleanser so we know we use it a lot as a skin cleanser and of course that's it you're participating in that spring fresh when you need to after your hibernation of winter when you're feeling a bit sort of yucky you're getting you're 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 waking up to spring and cleaning having a bit of a spring cleanse that's lovely and i want to just say a bit more about that that particular group because of all the um foraging um education stuff that i've done that one really stands out because it wasn't just a day was it we did a whole year with uh bell size transition towns oh yes that's true and they they asked that the, the folk there said could could you do four seasons so mm. i came up and we all went out on Hampstead heath wasn't it and and ended up back at somebody's house every time just cooking up what we'd found so there was a little bit of a community gathering around that and certain people kept on going in between uh the seasons and, and were cooking in each other's houses and so by the then the following year we had this okay let's all come down to Canterbury. you all come down to canterbury and we'll go to the coast and do seaweeds oh, that was like the final the grand finale of it oh, but, okay but, mm. but, but what i found so great about it was that it 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 I was kind of like the uh, the initiator of of the the kind of basic journey for a lot of people of showing them a few plants and and getting them started right the Kickstarter I should say is probably a better word um, but people coming back to the following one uh, we I don't know where we started but say we started in spring and then it was summer you know the next time people were coming back with recipes and showing me stuff that I knew nothing about. And then there was, there was, there was a lady from Japan that finally showed me the correct way of cooking burdock root. Ah. She'd done it all her life. So she did that <laughs> bit. 
And then the, 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 the one in Canterbury, I remember having said, you can make a tea out of this cleavers. It's a spring tonic, and I think we'd tried it. But somebody in the meantime had tried doing a cold infusion. And that's what came together on that day. So the meal that we had was a great big jug with, with cleavers that had been crushed and let to infuse for, for a while. And we drank that, and it was delicious and tasted of green bananas and peas and... And and the and the and the hot infusion absolutely doesn't taste like that. This this tastes far better. Now from there, every foraging walk I've ever done since then, and a lot of times in between, just telling friends, hey, that plant there, you know, I always tell people about the the uh, the cold infusion of cleavers. It's just one of the best bits of wild plant knowledge I've got. But that was something that came out of people feeding feeding back to me. Yeah. on the following one and so i just thought that was that was just such a lovely thing that, that you've, you've just ex exemplified complexity you know we uh, need each other we can't yeah. have clever ideas on our own and we can't learn stuff on our own you know and to some extent but we you know it's this coming together in this sharing of knowledge that's exactly what living medicine is it's the Fantastic. oh god what a brilliant idea let's try it oh and that really tastes good you know that's that's hitting those receptors <laughs> you know that's um, great yeah so yes that's that's exactly living medicine really and and funnily enough i mean i've just done us a, a, i'm running a course at chelsea physic at the moment of our five you know the original course that we developed for living medicine which is five a five part thing five part course in basic understanding of how to use plants in you know main main problems in, in main illnesses or main conditions if you like and one of them is um i would we i picked lots of cleavers just now and some some um nettle but actually what I've done with it, I'm going to put it into, when it's young, you can put it into pestos. Mm. Um, you know, I, I did this lovely soapy dish where you just put olive oil in the base of a dish with some garlic and wet chopped uh, um, nettles and mixed with spring greens and some leek mm. uh, and some cleavers, if you like, and you put all that together with a little bit of water that you've washed it in, put the lid on, salt and pepper, lid on, go away, 10 minutes later, you know, you've got the most utterly delicious steam sauté dish. Wow. I, can't, I mean, it's such a simple way to cook. I call it steam sautéing, and I'm sure all cultures have done it, especially those who forage leaf leaves, and you probably do it, mm. leaves, you know, because leaves, hota, they talk about in... In, exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, in, so, in Greece, and then there's a version of that all across the Middle East, was slightly yeah. different. Yeah. But I, I've, I've kind of chucked other things in. You know, I'm very lazy cook, so I want to do it very quickly because I'm afraid I am a very speedy person in some ways. And so I chuck in a bit of sweet potato. And but once you've got your garlic and your olive oil and your leek chopped, or even without the leek, because the garlic does it, chuck in anything and put the mm. lid on as long as there's a bit of water in there, and it gets this lovely unctuousness going. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you can eat your cleavers as well. I mean, you know that, but small when they're young, they're not very nice if they're, you know, too, too old, obviously. Yeah, they get a bit fibrous, don't they? Too yeah. fibrous. Yeah, same with, yeah. same with nettles, I think, you know, because they, they're tough as old boots, you know, they're so strong. I mean, just to say one other thing about complexity um, is that the point about plants is that on the one hand, they've got macronutrients. We need those for energy, mm. you know, the fat, the protein, the carbohydrate. That's very important. Then they've got their micronutrients, which is their vitamins and their minerals. 
well, these are all human classifications. And then they've got their phytonutrients or phytochemicals, which are the things like, you know, the chemical groups that they develop, like the glycosides in the rose family that help the heart function. You know, the curcumin, the turmeric, the, the curcumin and the turmeric. These are one of maybe 500 or even a thousand chemicals that could be aromatic or uh, whatever. But these are the chemicals that the plant develops, these phytochemicals, to become uh, antiviral in response to its environment. So antiviral, anti-infective, antiseptic, anti fungal um, to communicate with with other insects to communicate with plants to communicate with predators to maybe start developing something that the predator won't like if it's being over predated so this amazing chemical plant maker of chemicals this plant is mm. doing it in response to a bit of stress or in response to a uh, you know, as I say, to infection or to a virus or a, it's that's what it's doing. It's producing its own fantastic defense chemicals and attractant chemicals and so on. That we then, as the eater, use as our medicine. That mm. is what we use as medicine. And modern medicine has simply said, oh, there's one of these that's really powerful. We're going to turn that into a drug. Well, that can be helpful, but it can also be pretty destructive because we're not designed to get one big chemical in large amounts, yeah. particularly made in a synthetic way, to work in the body. So what plants need is a bit of stress and a complex environment to thrive in so that it then develops that lovely array of phytochemicals as well as its you know, other macronutrients that we need as our medicine. So, you know, trying to imitate nature at a very basic simplified level, which is... Um, to create hydroponics, for example, not hydroponics of watercress, where in Alsford and other lovely places, yes, you have got man-made imitation of nature with flowing water over a very complex bed of different minerals and stones and soil and got insects yeah. in there and whatever. That's, that's, that's you know, a real, that's true to life. That. That's kind of much closer to life. Mm. But creating hydroponics when a bit of NPK or some fertilizer and um, pesticide and whatever is put in and this plant is, and this happens a lot, you can see, you can just see it for yourself with thyme that's grown in hydroponics or plants, you know, a lot of herbs in supermarkets are grown in hydroponics. They're spindly, they're, they're mollycoddled, they've yeah. grown in controlled environments which has not allowed them to develop those really essential phytonutrients, which are their defense chemicals, their attracting chemicals, in response, developed by the plant in response to a complex environment with a bit of stress. It's funny, I think, yeah, it's just making me think like we we, we, we constantly try and mollycoddle ourselves as well, don't we? Like, we probably... We probably uh, produce some of our best stuff under a little bit of pressure, but... Yeah, we absolutely do. And that's yeah. really, really important. And this is going to be a new concept in medicine. I think it's called hormesis or hormetic stress. So it, there's now evidence around, you know, 30, 30 second cold shower is actually supports your immune system. And right. lots of other forms of a bit of stress is a good thing, not least lifting weights, not getting somebody to lift your heavy bags as long as you've got to know how to lift and you have got a good back and so on that's what strengthens your body yeah yeah whereas um yeah i mean a lot of the stuff uh 
that I've been looking at recently to do with sort of mental well-being and so on is related to the fact that we are um, we flourish and thrive when we're in this thing which a guy Stephen Porges he calls it social engagement mode that's that's our our flourishing state and and at that point um, you know our our heartbeat is steady um, and we're emotionally open we're not critical we're not judgmental things like that Um, but he says that that most of the problems that we call mental ill health um, are as a result of being in either fight or flight or, or, or shutdown mode, which are actually more primitive neurophysiological systems. Um, but stress and pressure is, is, is the kind of fight or flight thing. Which well, it's, it's just making me think that, 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 that um, we're supposed to just have a little bit, like you said, and then... We, we work through that and, and we're back into just this nice bonded situation of feeling comfortable in our skin, feeling in, in communion with other people in the land. But we just need a little bit of edginess and then we come back in. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. A little bit of edginess. That's it. That's it. And or if we get a lot of edginess, like, you know, the, the saber tooth tiger, to use that, you know, wet, yeah. old worn phrase, um, it's that we need to work off that stress yeah. by yeah. running. You know, and not sitting at a desk getting more worked up and more worked up and more adrenally fatigued and exhausted in, in every way because we don't know how to how to um, express it. It's all this inwardness and no expression. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I guess the other thing that an animal does after it's been chased is it goes to ground. So there's running away and then there's going to ground. Um, recover. That's yes, free. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. we, we, we yeah. just don't know how to go to ground. We just keep pushing ourselves. We're like, we've oh. got stress and pressure. So now I just need to do more work to get myself out of this and get to the end of it. <laughs> Actually, you need to go to ground. You're so right. And that's where seasons and rhythm come in so powerfully. And again, I just was so it was such a blessing to have to think about seasons, really, because I suddenly realized, well, and particularly in the north, of course, you get less of that in the in where we've all evolved. You know, in the temp- in the uh, tropical region, you don't get so much, but you do have the rhythm of night and dark, which is what has is at the root of our design as both flowering plants and humans and and animals. Is we're all running on this circadian rhythm. So you've got your daily rhythm of light and dark, and the whole point is that um, the 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 person running away from the the danger. You expect lots of cortisol and adrenaline is going, blah, blah. And then you run away. So you expend that energy. And then you go and recover, as you say. You curl up and you recover at night. Or maybe you might have to recover during the day as well. But night is the time for repair. The darkest time for repair. And the day is the time for action. And we have given are giving ourselves constant jet lag, mild jet lag, by pushing you know electric lights on basically making us stay awake when when all our body clock our 24 hour body clock and the other body clocks are all trying to say go to bed because <laughs> we're, we're supposed to be repairing at night so we don't get as much repair as we should of course we're not going to change that very much but it's it's sort of recognizing you know a nod towards when we eat how we eat you know, much less winding down towards the end of the day, allow the body to repair, don't have a big meal at night. Um, recognize those of us in the northern hemisphere that the dark, you know, season 
winter is for a little bit more repair. Um, spring is for a bit of recovery and taking the cleavers and, you know, cleaning up our act a bit after stuffing ourselves in the winter, mm. which is fair enough. Do you know, it's that understanding and response to what is around us um, and being aware of those rhythms, really. And it's quite exciting to think, ooh, you know, now spring is coming. So what's nature telling me about what I might, what, what lesson can I learn here? What, what should I take on board? It's, that's a reconnecting itself, really, to what's around you and what's happening. I, I just think it's so um, exhilarating um, and such a great relief to, to, to remember something, which is that we are still these wild bodies. Yes, cheers. We're the same wild bodies. And so when we talk about listening to the land and, and, and so on, because we're looking out there and seeing here's this wonderful, masterful complexity, which has so much wisdom to teach us. But nevertheless, if we just sit still and look at our knees, <laughs> consider our eyebrows. You know? Yes. Just, this, too, is wonderful, majestic, yes. wild complexity. We have not been, you know, people talk about humans having been domesticated, and that's a whole area to think about that we'd probably do 19 podcasts about because it's a big subject. But right. the fact is, our bodies are still wild, actually. The, yes. the, the neurons firing, the way that, that your antibodies work and so on, they've been marred by civilization. But still, here we are, and, and, and there's, there's, there's some listening that we can do um, with respect to, I mean, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've become more and more conscious of that in the last couple of years, not really something I ever thought about before, that, that you know, that this body is something that teaches us wisdom. But, um, it so does, and it's the uh, imperative of life that is 4.6 billion years old. It's well, carried on, and we've yeah. got it in us. I mean, it's that yeah. that yeah. is that imperative, and it's our job to actually not be God not play God yeah. and think, and it's a relief not to have to be so controlled and controlling to think I've got to reinvent all this or invent all this. Listen to what's already there, that wisdom. And yes, a bit of biomimicry and a bit of respect will take us, well, it'll take us further because, you know, we are destroying ourselves and the planet, well, not the planet, the planet will probably exist, but we are destroying ourselves because we haven't paid attention to our wonderful design and it is a great great design there may be some flaws but the, to something to continue for 4.6 billion years this life you know and the cell is one hell of a thing we can't reinvent that we're not going to come up with something better yeah <laughs> that's the smart thing if we suddenly got 21st century smart we'd be celebrating this thing that is not could we do artificial intelligence and blah, 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 blah. Exactly, exactly. And we're, we're so young, we humans, uh, you know, we really, we know nothing. So, yes, we do need to do some careful listening. All right, Alex. Well, that does feel like a conclusion. <laughs> Brilliant to talk to you. Very, very, it's always inspiring to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. And, yeah. and hearing where you are. And what was the name of this guy, Stephen something, Social Engagement Road? Uh, oh, yeah, we'll stick that beneath the podcast Good. as well. But it's it's uh, it's the polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges. Porges. Oh. Okay. 
he's got quite a few YouTube videos. He's just a gorgeous man. Um, By the way, um, I did write a name down when we were talking before and of somebody that maybe you might like to talk to as well. And her name is Sue Brown. And she is the only, she's a herbalist. Mm. She took, she learnt with Isla, Isla Burgess in New Zealand. She is the only cheesemaker that I'm aware of anyway in Kenya. Wow. And she is fermentation queen. And mm. she comes over to the UK quite a lot uh, too, but she and her family, she has her cow, uh, her house cow that I could have sat and watched all day. It was the most wonderful house cow. And she lets it roam in the garden, you know, eating whatever. And But she is an absolute fermentation passion, has a fermentation passion, and she has ferm she ferments all over the place. So she'd be a brilliant person to talk to, maybe. Great. No, we want to do more on fermentation. I mean, you, you realise that we, we spoke to Sandor Katz the other week, but you just realise... Ah, great. We are scratching the surface here, and, yeah. and um, we, we're going to do some more episodes, more focused ones on different aspects. So that would be great. Well, she talked about medicine, you know, fermentation and medicine, as well as being a cheesemaker. And mm. cheese, by the way, another great book, by the way, that is absolutely taught me so much uh, about nature. It is by um, the Percivals, Fran Bronwyn and Francis Percival, who are the, uh, she is the buyer for Neil's Yard Cheeses, and they've both written a book called Reinventing the Wheel. And it's ah. all about the cheese microbiome. And it is a revelation about the complexity of life and how you make a good cheese and how it reflects place. Wow. The whole story. But I'll put that down, even though we haven't really talked about it. I'll put it down because it's such a you know wonderful book for anybody interested in how cheese is made and yeah email that across we'll get it we'll get it underneath uh just just to get you to say something with this always a thing where where you start talking before um the official podcast starts yes you said uh, a wonderful statement about cabbages earlier i wonder if you could say about the cabbage family um and and just explain where that fits into the the world of living medicine you know mm -hmm. what 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 are cabbages doing for us or, or plants in the cabbage family well we, we talking about sea kale for example which you you you've been saying has grown so uh has been thriving uh, mm. around the coast um it's it, certainly a lot more of, a, of it now than there was a hundred years ago it's it's really, quite a phenomenon yeah yeah well and i know this is a whole thing about you know plants maybe developing when we need them and so-called invasives like um, Japanese knotweed you know which has got resveratrol and many other chemicals no doubt that are very anti-tumor anti-cancer very anti-inflammatory but the, mm. the, the cabbage family is hugely important to us as humans and probably to other animals too because it's one of the it provides many compounds that detoxify our liver and particularly something called phase two detoxification. So uh, it's cleaning out our liver, helping our liver to process substances that it's doing every second. Um, but not only that, the mustardy taste, what are called mustard oil glycosides or glucosinolates, sinolates, glucosinolates, are, um, have a direct anti-tumor action as well. So they are so important to us in, a, in an age where we have 
developing uh, chronic inflammatory disease, mm-hmm. like heart disease, cancer, but also all kinds of conditions, really, eczema, psoriasis, whatever. Um, so that we, we basically need to eat more uh, cabbage, um, you know, incorporate that really as part of our diet. You know, and it can be watercress. You know, there's some fantastic work around watercress and breast cancer. Um, people often in breast cancer know that they should be eating broccoli, but it's not just broccoli. It's just all that cabbage family have this mm. wonderful capacity, and including horseradish, which is part of the cabbage family. Fantastic, and there's lots and lots of wild species in the cabbage family. I always think it's so reassuring to know that mm. they're all edible. So you exactly. find exactly. anything in that family, you can eat it. Um, yeah. And it will have these kind of benefits you're talking about. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's been it's been um, really lovely to speak to you and really fascinating and uh, brain stretching as well. So, <laughs> Reciprocity, Miles. That's, yes, what it's that's what it's all about. Yeah. Really and good. taking the big overview as well. You know, the big overview and the detail, not forgetting one without the other. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on to the podcast. And we we should pick this up again in a few months time. Thank you so much for offering to do it with me. I'm really it's such fun to do. And so many ideas come out of conversation. And I and actually I just should say something um, that I'm about to go to France to learn mm. how to uh, to learn with a master baker, a master sourdough maker and grower of old wheat. Wow. And I was blessed to find this through somebody called Rupert Dunn, I think his name is, who's uh, living in Wales and is a small batch baker and grower of wheat, old Mm. wheat. And he's leading this group to go to Nicolas Supio in Brittany to learn from the master. And he's another person that you might enjoy talking to. Yeah, please plug us in to interesting people. That's that's great. That's that's the only thing. Yeah, will do. Thank you, Miles. Fantastic to speak to you. And you I'm going to listen to your other podcasts now with great interest. Fantastic. All right, then. <laughs> okay. Bye for now. Bye for now. Take good care. Thank you for listening to this week's Worldwide Podcast. And please do rate us on iTunes and leave us a good review if you like us. Um, and also have a look at our Patreon page. It'd be great if we can get some people just signing up to support the podcast. Um, as, uh, as, as I said at the beginning, we're currently sponsored by our own um, efforts at, over at Forager and the Wildbox. It'd be great to get some people supporting um, and enabling us to keep doing this. And in fact, to, to branch out, we're, we're, we're considering having a few different channels for the podcast, which we're really excited about. Um, but that's obviously going to take a bit more work. So um, if, you, if, you, if you like what we do and you'd like to see more of it, just think about becoming a patron. Okay, that's it for this week.